there's more attention being garnered towards, you know, the emotional aspect of the integrated financial plan. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. It's Jason Watt here. This episode will be good for continuing education credits for your life insurance license in British Columbia, Alberta, where it's life only, no accident and sickness. Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario. It'll be good for FP Canada financial planning credits, advocacy credits, and IROC on the professional development side. So in this episode, I have an interview with Tim. Tim is a financial planner, and he had reached out to me with a fairly complex case. He's going to talk about some of the details of the case within the podcast. I love this interview. There's two really overlapping and seemingly separate things that happen here. You'll hear them in the interview. Before we get into the interview, I'm going to talk about the retirement compensation arrangement. And then following the interview, I'm going to talk about the second interesting thing that came up here, which really points to, I think, a lot of how we should do financial planning engagements. And it sounds kind of like I pick on Tim right at the tail end of the interview. That's certainly not my intention. We are all learning, all of us, all the time together. And I learned a lot from this interaction. I found it quite useful. The color for today's episode is green. The color for today's episode is green. Okay, so let's have a look at the retirement compensation arrangement. This is interesting and quite complex, although I think when you get down to the rules, it's not that bad. It's more complex because of its scarcity, because we don't deal with them all that often. So I want to take a few minutes here to explain what happens in a retirement compensation arrangement. The RCA is essentially a high income alternative to other retirement savings plans. So I think we all know if we're using an RRSP or a defined benefit or defined contribution plan or an IPP for that matter, they all use the same income limit, about $155,000 in 2020. Basically, if you make up to about that $155,000, you take that times 18% or that times 2% if you're talking about a defined benefit pension. And that expresses either the maximum contribution or the maximum benefit accrual with those plans. So the RCA is essentially the answer to the question, well, what if I have an employee who makes more than 
$55,000 a year, and I want to put away some retirement money for that person. And we can do that. That's fine. An employer can do that. However, there's an income tax restriction that we wander into here. So the Income Tax Act says, fine, go ahead, do that. Now, very broadly, when you have high income earning employees, we generally refer to a, a class of retirement plans called SERPs. These are either supplemental executive retirement plans or supplemental employee retirement plans. You'll run into both versions of that acronym, but they basically say, well, how do we do this if we have that high income earner? The IPP is sometimes bundled in with that SERP sort of arrangement, but keep in mind the IPP still has to respect your income limits. If you make more than about $155,000, then you're still going to be capped at your ability to participate in the IPP. So if you've got somebody who makes $400,000 a year, for example, they can use an IPP, but it's not going to meaningfully replace that $400,000 of annual income. So in the range of SERPs, there is a couple of plans that we see used that are defined in the Income Tax Act. There's a few other ways to do this, but two ways that we see defined in the Income Tax Act would be through an EPSP, an Employee Profit Sharing Plan. The EPSP allows the employer to put money away for an employee with basically no tax deferral benefits. The idea here is that we put that money into an EPSP trust. It's invested. Typically, the employee will have access to a range of investment options, and there's no tax benefit. It's immediately taxable. The contributions to the plan are immediately taxable. When the employer makes them, they'd be deductible for the employer and taxable for the employee. And then investment gains as well. Investment gains are taxed just as they normally would be if you had dividend income or capital gains or a tax deferral from a, an unrealized capital gain, for example, all of those tax consequences would just pass through to the employee like most other trust arrangements. And then basically when the employee retires one day down the road, they're going to have access to this tax paid pool of capital. One of the things that employers like about EPSPs is that they can be used as a sort of handcuff. We can put liquidity restrictions or we can have vesting limitations where if an employee leaves before a certain amount of time that the employer can take that money back. If they do that, then the employee gets an offsetting tax deduction, which doesn't necessarily work out great for them. But typically, that high-income earning employee would have a big severance package to go along with an unexpected departure, and it might be still useful to get that big tax deduction. You'll sometimes see EPSPs used when employers are specifically planning to have the employee buy them out one day. So some employers will put money into an EPSP and say, well, employee, one day you're going to use that as a, as a down payment or whatever to buy out my interest in the business and it becomes sort of a succession planning issue. I don't find them used all that often. I hardly ever run into EPSPs. They would typically be the kind of thing that would come from a pension consultancy. That's the type of place you would typically see that arranged. I can't think of a scenario I've ever discussed with an 
individual level sort of financial advisor where that person has recommended the use of an EPSP. Now, the RCA is the second alternative that we'll talk about in that realm of SERPs. So the RCA is the Retirement Compensation Arrangement. And the way the RCA works is the employer only, just like with the EPSP, makes contributions into the plan. And you could have this with an owner-operator who runs a, a successful small business where there's good cash flow and so forth. Or you could have this in an employer-employee scenario. We'll talk about the owner-operator scenario first, and then I'll circle back to the employer-employee scenario. So the, in the owner-operator scenario, what might happen here is you've got a business owner who has fantastic cash flow, and that person is making good income. Maybe they're taking a salary or some other, could be dividends, form of compensation, maybe four or $500,000 a year and they've got other cash still sitting in their corporation. Now, I am a fan of using a hold co as a retirement planning vehicle, although today that's become quite a bit more restrictive. The AAII, the Adjusted Aggregate Investment Income Rules, mean that if you generate more than $50,000 a year of taxable passive income within your sort of corporate structures, you start to lose access to your small business deduction. That might give that owner-operator some incentive to try and get money out of their corporation. So the RCA becomes a way to do that. Now, you can use the RCA for the corporation to take money out of itself on a tax-deductible basis. So we're pulling money out, tax-deductible. There's no immediate tax consequence for the, in this case, operator of the business, who's having that RCA trust established on their behalf. So if we take, let's say for the sake of argument, $100,000 out of the corporation that year, we move it into an RCA, what really is going to happen here is if we have a $100,000 contribution, there's a $100,000 deduction for the corporation, $50,000 of that money will go into the RCA trust where it's invested, and the other $50,000 will go to Canada Revenue Agency in a non-interest-bearing withholding account. So CRA is going to hang on to that $50,000. And they're not going to do anything with it. It is refundable, but it's not refundable until the plan member retires. Or at least until we start to have withdrawals from the RCA trust, which generally happens when the plan member retires. Now, there's no legislated cap on how much can be contributed to an RCA. There is kind of a rough guideline in these owner-operator scenarios that says about 20% of your total income. So in the scenario I just talked about, we had somebody making $500,000, we put $100,000 into the RCA. That would be within the normal bounds of reasonableness if you're going to go beyond that, you would want to, well, no matter what with the RCA, and this is an important disclaimer, you would need to consult an appropriately qualified both actuary and probably a tax lawyer as well. At the end of the episode here, I'm going to have links to a whole bunch of different resources. The tax lawyer that Tim talks about in this episode is Trevor Perry. I'll include Trevor's contact information. Trevor's my go-to whenever I have one of these questions. And in fact, in this exact scenario, I had sent 
Tim to Trevor. I said, I'm not qualified to answer the range of questions that needs to be answered here. Go talk to Trevor. He will help you out. And uh, Trevor understands the business of financial planning and understands how financial planners operate. He is the right guy to talk to if you ever have a question about any of these uh, SERP type arrangements or a bunch of other sort of tax lawyer relevant questions you'll see on his website, a, a list of a bunch of stuff he can help you out with. Anyways, back to the RCA. So what happens with the RCA then, the employer put away this money. So we've got $50,000 now that's invested in that RCA trust and then the other $50,000 that's sitting with Canada Revenue Agency. The $50,000 that's invested, if it earns any taxable returns, so dividend income, interest, rents, anything like that, those amounts attract a 50% withholding tax. And so you're giving half of any taxable gains over to the CRA again. For that reason, it's quite common with the RCA to use a different type of investment here to use something that has deferred gains within it. And there's a bunch of stuff you could do. You could have a bunch of equities that don't pay much or pay no dividends at all and only have capital gains and then just not sell shares ever. So a real buy and hold type of strategy. You could buy ETFs that don't have a lot of distributions. You could use corporate class mutual funds. You'll hear in the interview, Tim brings up the prospect of life insurance. You could hold a life insurance policy in here, or you could do a split dollar arrangement where personally or maybe corporately you're funding the risk premium and really just using the RCA to fund the investment component. All of these would generate tax deferred gains and you don't have to worry about that 50% withholding tax then on your taxable gains. To this point, there's no tax to the plan member, to the employee, to the operator of the business, whatever the case is. All the tax is dealt with within the RCA. And there's no pension adjustment or anything like that. This has no impact on your RRSP room. What happens then is we continue to accrue benefits in that RCA trust. So let's say the employer continues to kick in a $100,000 a year, 50,000 of that really gets invested, 50,000 goes and sits with CRA. And we accumulate that and it grows and it grows and we're still just accumulating $50,000 a year into the withholding account. And then one day the employee or the operator of the business says, that's great, I'm done. Maybe they sell their business and now they have the RCA trust or maybe they keep their business and whatever the business maybe is paying out dividends to other people at that point or however it works, it doesn't really matter. But now we're going to stop funding the RCA trust and start pulling income from it. So now the corporation stops putting money in and the beneficiary of the plan starts to take money out. And let's say for the sake of argument, you've got $3 million in here at that point. And let's say we've got let's call it $1.2 million in the CRA account. So what'll happen is you might take $200,000 of income that year, that comes straight from the RCA trust, that's now taxable, that's truly taxable income. It's not pension income for the purpose of the pension income tax credit or income splitting, it's just income to that retired person. Now, if that retired person happens to retire abroad, 
then they're subject to a default 25% withholding tax. This is actually one of the big wins potentially with an RCA is that you can pull money out if you're retiring elsewhere and only have a 25% withholding tax. And then they're paying regular tax on their withdrawals if they're a resident of Canada. Now, what happens at that point, they took $200,000 out. Let's say they retire in 2020, just for the sake of argument, they take $200,000 out of the plan as income. Well, now in 2021, CRA is going to look at that. They say, oh, you took $200,000 out last year. We're gonna give you half of that. So we take $200,000 times 50%, that's $100,000. At that point in 2021, so a year lagging, CRA will kick $100,000 from its withholding, that non-interest bearing withholding account back into the RCA trust. So this is how you don't leave a bunch of money with CRA. You have to have a sort of appropriate plan. And this is where the actuary is instrumental. You need an appropriate plan to pull your retirement income out at a pace that will obviously last and provide appropriate retirement income, but also that will allow you to not have any money left with CRA when the RC has been stripped of all of its resources. And if you mistime this, you can potentially end up with a problem where CRA just has cash that you can't get back because you didn't plan your income properly. So it is important to have that actuary involved. And this is one of the downsides of the RCA, obviously, is we have the actuary, we have the tax lawyer, you're gonna need the client's accountant on side. There's a whole bunch of moving parts to this thing. And we're gonna hear in the interview that this is where at least some of the concerns that Tim has arose. Now, the other thing that we can do with an RCA, we can use it in an employee situation. And in an employee situation, you might have a case where somebody's getting a big severance or a big bonus or possibly just a high income earning employee where the employer wants to fund that person's retirement or give that person that money on a tax efficient basis. These are more complicated scenarios because quite often what you're doing here is you're setting that RCA participating employee into a class by themselves. This is where we might need additional employment contracts. We might need some sort of special agreement around how severance is paid. This gets a little bit more complicated. You wouldn't do this for a 30 or a $50,000 severance. You would do this for hundreds of thousands of dollars of severance or bonus or that kind of thing. A place where you do see this done with relatively smaller amounts, and the federal government actually does this. If you have a federal government employee who would participate in a defined benefit pension plan, but their income is high enough that they exceed that roughly $150,000 limit that I had talked about before, and it's actually calculated a little bit differently for federal government employees, but if their income would be high enough that the defined benefit pension plan can't fully look after that person, what actually happens for a lot of federal civil servants is they will have a defined benefit pension plan up to the legislated limits and then an RCA as a sort of supplement to that defined benefit pension plan. This becomes quite complicated and a lot of people don't know that that's what's happening. They just figure everything is defined benefit across the board 
when the reality is they have defined benefit and RCA working hand in hand. And the challenge there, of course, is the RCA is taxed quite a bit differently from the defined benefit pension plan. If you run into a case like that, I would suggest you want to deal with somebody who does a fair bit of pension work. This is where, you know, we've talked to Alexander McQueen on a previous episode of the podcast. She would be a great person to reach out to in those scenarios. Trevor Perry, again, might be a good person to talk to. Leah Coiv is another person who would be good to talk to if you run into one of those RCA scenarios. They're quite complicated and they do have some potential unintended consequences. Notably, the estate planning gets quite difficult here. Okay, I hope that's a useful look at the RCA. It's hard to do in this format. I really like having my whiteboard along for this kind of thing. The big thing to remember with the RCA is you're going to have that 50% refundable withholding tax while you're contributing to the plan. And then when the plan starts to wind down, you start to get that refundable withholding tax back. Let's hear from Tim now. And at the end of the interview, we're going to cover the second sort of interesting item that I found in this discussion. I'm here today with Tim. Tim is a financial planner based in the greater Toronto area and uh, both life and investment licensed. Tim, I've got that right. That's correct. Perfect. And I'm specifically reaching out today because you had a, a really interesting client scenario, which I want to get to, but I have just a couple of questions about background and your practice before we get into that, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So how long have you been at it for, Tim? Right now, I'd probably be around eight years total. Okay, excellent. And you have a background as a competitive athlete. I always find this interesting. I run into a lot of former athletes, uh, curlers, golfers, tennis players, all that kind of stuff. And I'm interested to know about how your background in athletics translated into this industry. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. So I was a, uh, a competitive junior golfer growing up. Um, that essentially, uh, I, I got a pretty late start on it by at least by comparison today, um, where I believe I was around 13 when I started playing, um, picked up the game pretty quickly, um, was stood to, or well, I, I guess I benefited from, uh, you know, having a pretty significant relationship in uh, a golf coach who helped me you know, tremendously. Um, he, we ultimately gained a little bit of, uh, I suppose, national exposure. Um, I was part of the, uh, one of the junior, t- uh, junior teams, um, Team Canada. So we would, you know, travel uh, to a few continents playing, uh, you know, competitive tournaments with, you know, whether it be other countries or other, uh, you know, post-secondary institutions. Um, From there, it really kind of, um, you know, gave me a sense of uh, this is something that I could probably do and and was certainly interested in doing. Um, Now I, I moved from you know, Curtis, which is, you know, slightly east of Toronto by about maybe an hour um, down to Florida uh, with my golf coach. And we then kind of trained, uh, established a groundwork to, you know, get a, uh, an NCAA, NCAA scholarship where I played division one golf for uh, five years. And from there, you know, I, I had, uh, you know, a tremendous competitive experience. And um, in there, I would say that, uh, you know, golf was inherently social. 
So it opened up a lot of avenues for me to, you know, meet different people that I certainly wasn't used to. So one of the people that I ended up meeting ended up, uh, you know, eventually became my mentor, um, where he actually had his own, you know, private multifamily office, where I became a little familiar with, you know, the, the dealings of, you know, what it means to be a financial advisor, where uh, at the same time, I was contemplating coming back home. And in there, one of my very good friends, he actually played hockey down in Alabama. He had made the transition up uh, to Canada, introduced me to the Career Channel, and uh, so was the, the story of my career, at least to this point. Okay, excellent. And do you find, uh, for example, you talk about your coach quite a bit in there, right? Both, it's funny you mentioned both a coach and a mentor in that same uh, comment. Uh, do you still rely heavily on uh, coaching and or mentoring relationships? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, drawing a metaphor, uh, I suppose, from from golf, you know, there's, there's wonderful applications to, I suppose, life. And that's something that I definitely learned earlier on with my golf coach, and that he was certainly more life based than he was, you know, practicing playing golf. Um, so yeah, I think that there's, that there's still tremendous utility in you know, having people to lean on and furthering my education is definitely a thing that I, you know, take personally, take to heart and, uh, really am a big advocate for. So yes, I would say that I strongly, you know, see the value in having someone to, to, you know, rely on. And I assume you're still a, a regular on the golf course. Uh, you know, not so much. Uh, yeah, after I was done college, I, you know, essentially hung up the clubs for a little bit there where, you know, quick cold Turkey and and I'm getting back into it slowly, but it's, uh, there, there's all, there's this kind of uh, fall off where you're used to playing at a certain, uh, you know, level and you just can't achieve that level anymore, especially working all the time. So yeah, I I would say that I, 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 I participate in golf, but uh, sparingly. Interesting. I guess then what I was thinking here, you know, you talk about getting to to roll in some social circles when you're on the golf course all the time that you don't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily always uh, be in. Uh, do you see golf as a way to attract or meet clients? Would you see that as a, as a viable way to, uh, to get introduced? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, socially for sure, you, you get to meet people that you probably wouldn't ordinarily get to meet. Right. Um, I think that's the, probably one of the, the greatest things about the sport in, in and of itself. Um, but I would also say that, um, at least from a, a financial planning perspective, it, it gives you a, a wonderful guide, I think, in terms of structuring perhaps recommendations. So in, playing competitive golf, there's this concept called course management and course management, uh, the term means different things to different people. But for me, how I learned it is that you build uh, a game plan based on starting on the putting green and work your way back to the tee, which is ultimately, you know, the talk about metaphors or similarities between life and, and sport. This is essentially what I apply in my practice. That's like objectives-based financial planning, right? That's yeah. It sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah, nice. I like that. Okay, um, so yeah, the uh, just switching gears then, and I'm sure you have a ton of wisdom coming from that uh, that golf background. I find that like just getting to spend all that time in a coach environment is so helpful. 
but I do want to get into this uh, very specific scenario. So you had hit me up on LinkedIn maybe a month or so ago. You had a, a client who had some, we'll call it sudden money, right? Who stumbled into, uh, I think, a large unexpected bonus. Can you talk a little bit about the, the background here on this? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, maybe the, it's easiest to break it down in, in segments. So just for context, um, you know, this individual essentially approached me, you know, asking for an opinion um, as to how to solve you know, a financial problem um, to which after, I guess we talked about it a little bit, they reduced it to, you know, something related to tax. Um, it seemed to be, you know, the, the individual seemed to be pretty sophisticated, you know, based on our initial conversations and certainly how they, uh, you know, I'd found that they structured their finances, um, to which I later found out that the, uh, the individual's common law partner um, had industry experience. So that kind of, uh, yeah, solved that, you know, query. Uh, now on discovery, the, this person was very young, uh, at least by comparative, stand, uh, comparative um, you know, measures. Um, like I said, they had a common law partner, uh, no dependents at the time, uh, but they anticipated on starting a family in the coming years and they lived extremely modestly. Like I was very surprised with how modest they lived. Um, they had no, a reasonable debt load, you know, where there's no revolving lines. Uh, they assumed again, a very modest income, uh, or sorry, modest income adjusted mortgage. And I, I like to try and keep all the, the capital denominations based on the adjusted uh, basis of you know the uh, the net income, so I found that to be about two times what their net income would be on their mortgage. Um, so, which is again kind of surprising. Um, they're very very healthy, like I said, adjusted savings rates, uh, which translated into strong surplus cash flows. Uh, the individual is uh, you know uh, again to receive a, a sizable un unforeseen you know performance bonus. Uh, where they had minimal RSP contribution room, uh, no unique deductions or credits available to them, um, and any enforced insurance policies were adequate. Perfect. So their their goals were you know somewhat vague. They just basically wanted to create a favorable outcome. So they kind of approach you with a with a tax question, right? They come to you and they say, Tim, and as I remember, the the amount of bonus was it was a multiple of annual salary, right? It was a a significant amount compared to annual salary. That's correct, yes. And they come to you and they say, Tim, I've got a, a tax problem, right? Is that kind of how it presents itself? They didn't really see it as a tax problem. They just, they eventually saw it as a tax problem, but they just saw it as a large amount of money that they really had no idea what to do with. Okay, which, I mean, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a problem, but I, I get it, right? So that's, that's how it goes. Um, and I think you looked at this and, and saw that they were going to have a, a large tax hit on it. That's, that's just the, the facts, right? There is not an easy way to, uh, to mitigate that. And I think that's where you reached out to me and said, any thoughts about how to manage this? That's fair? That's fair, yes. So, and that about hit the level of my expertise because <laughs> at that point I said, well, I know that sometimes we can manage a, a windfall like that uh, potentially by using the the RCA right so um, so can you talk a little bit about what followed as far as the RCA discussion right so I was um, you know picking up I guess from our conversation there um, you know I, guess, I suppose it was the handoff or the introduction to uh, to Trevor 
So, um, yeah, when I had, uh, when I talked with Trevor a little bit, um, you know, my, my initial impressions were unbelievable. So this was, you know, somebody who, you know, in the, I suppose maybe to, to give a little bit of context, like I, my initial conversation with him was maybe three minutes long. Um, and it was like far and beyond like maybe the most valuable conversation that I've had in my life where I probably learned like 10, 15 new words. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really kind of down an avenue that I was unfamiliar with at the time um, where it involved, you know, a tax lawyer or sorry, uh, contracts lawyers, um, you know, actuaries, as well as involving the uh, employer. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of this. You, you mentioned at the beginning that you felt like you, you had a client who was fairly sophisticated financially. Um, and so that would seem like a good fit for this type of solution. Yeah, that'd be accurate. Yeah, at least on in, in the initial onset there. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of moving parts with this thing, right? There's, uh, like you say, the employer, contracts lawyer, uh, you're going to have to touch on employment law, tax law. So um, did you find that everybody so i guess how many of the different parties did you get to to chat with about this along the way or was it primarily trevor who sort of managed that or was it really on you to to put all the puzzle pieces in place yeah it was on me um so trevor gave some some very good advice um so he kind of paved the way for me to you know spell out you do a b c and d kind of thing um now in terms of the individuals that i actually spoke with it would it would have been all of them. So included, it would be five parties, not including myself. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now I know you sort of set out down that path and then you were good enough. And I appreciate this because I don't always get this after I do one of these, but uh, you came back to me later on and you said, Oh, we've actually run into a, a sort of an unexpected hitch here. Right. And I'm hoping you can, I find, I mean, this whole thing is a fascinating sort of, exercise in, in what financial planning really is all about. And I'm hoping you can chat about that hitch a little bit, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to. Um, so the, the hitch that came about was, um, again, going back to understanding that this person was, you know, relatively young. Um, I think that, the inherently in financial planning, you need to, uh, again, account for the emotional aspect of, you know, what money means to people and help them try and figure it out and determine what their relationship is going to be going forward. Um, and ultimately, you know, long, long story short, what ended up happening was that the, the relationship that this individual wanted to have with their money, um, they weren't ultimately willing to take the action needed in order to satisfy their own best interests. Right. So they were you know, perhaps a little bit self-conscious about, you know, what the inherent um, you know, uniqueness or, or perception of their peers might, uh, uh, might present to them, you know, going forward. Yeah. It's interesting, I guess. Do you think that this person had to sort of see this level of complexity to realize what their relationship with the money was, or would there have been some other way to, uh, expose that. It seems like such a difficult problem. Yeah. Um, so I think in our, in our conversations, the, when we were talking about the, you know, the dollars and cents of things, there is a, you know, a tremendous case for, you know, having the RCA make sense, especially considering, you know, take it in cash. Um, so I, 
when we talked about the the structure of you know what a financial solution would look like it, it was always yes 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 until it really came to uh, understanding what actions were needed to uh, be taken in order to accomplish you know what the solution entailed so when when we spoke to kind of well i suppose when i spoke to the you know the need to um uh, involve an actuary as well as a contracts lawyer to amend essentially the, or I suppose novate actually, the, the contract um, between the employer and employee. Um, they were okay with that until they found out that it involved speaking to the employer and, you know, the finance department and it, it really getting them on board with what's happening here. It's interesting, you know, that when you start to get all of those those moving parts and then client kind of balks at the the deal right and i i understand that i think that that's that's a a very normal way to perceive this and especially um you know how much do you think this ties into you talked about this person having very basic kind of lifestyle needs do you think this might have been different if this had been somebody who i don't know leased the most car they could afford or something like that do you think that that person might have been more willing to take steps where they, I guess, didn't, didn't care about their fellow employees perception of some special treatment, something like that? Perhaps. Yeah. But I think that, um, I suppose maybe, uh, maybe taking the, the magnifying glass here out of the, out of the conversation and looking at what the bigger picture means, at least in, you know, how I approach finance is that, you know, I kind of, um, I really enjoy working with people who have like a sense of selflessness. So just that in and of itself, you know, yes, perhaps, you know, if the person did, did have, you know, a little bit more of a, an egocentricity to, you know, how they perceive money and, you know, maybe like their relationship with that. Yes. You know, maybe the, the circumstances would have been different now because of the, the implication that they, we eventually you know, came to know of, um, you know, how they, they basically perceive themselves with, uh, you know, I suppose uh, in and amongst the, the work environment there, that's something to be admired, I think. Right. Um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, perhaps at some points, yeah, the, the financial planner might see that as a lost opportunity to, you know, to take some, you know, in my opinion, some pretty cool action, right. In, in, uh, in executing a pretty unique, you know, financial strategy, but at the same time, it's, you know, recognition of the, of the type of client that you ultimately want to work with. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's, I would be surprised if it's a coincidence because, you, you know, just what we chatted a little bit before the call, Tim, you're not living like a, an elaborate financial life yourself, right? You say you kind of, you're happy to, to have a modest financial life and this client is the same thing. I, I'm sure it's not a coincidence that you ended up working with this person and I think anything you can do to, to narrow that down to say, these are the kind of clients I want to be working with is helpful. Yeah, I would agree with that. Now, I, I think that like, like attracts like, but uh, I, I just don't know too many people who are driving around with a 2009 Ford Fusion with about 140,000 kilometer, 140, 140, kilometers. Right. I'm a 2014 Mitsubishi. Tim, so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and okay. I, I upgraded from a 2003 Honda Civic about three years ago into my used Mitsubishi. So there we go. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm, I suppose based on that, you know, one of my, uh, one of my very good friends, he, uh, he has this kind of saying where it's, you know, say less than, you know, have more than you show kind of thing. And you know, that's something that I basically subscribe to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. Now, if you had gone, I, I'm now we're going to go back to the technical here a little yeah. bit, right? So if you had gone the, uh, RCA route, um, any feelings about or any thoughts about how that would have panned out? Would you have done just a like a corporate class mutual fund or would you have done uh, stocks or uh, life insurance policy? What what would that have looked like inside the RCA? Right. So maybe it's, it would be beneficial to discuss perhaps the structure of the RCA and then maybe that would help things make sense. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so the RCA itself is a financial structure that involves essentially two accounts, right? One is the non-interest bearing refundable tax account that, um, yeah, that doesn't participate in any kind of market performance. Uh, it's just essentially there for collateral. And really under the tax man's pillow while you're waiting to... Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. okay, that's good. And, and then the other uh, remaining 50% of the contribution is that which participates in market performance, perhaps, right? So understanding that the RCA is uh, its own separate entity under assumes that there's also tax filing obligations that go along with it, its own responsibilities. So assuming that the, the RCA is set up for a long-term goal such as retirement, you essentially want to mitigate any kind of taxable factors that go along with that. So, creating essentially a zero, uh, you know, a zero-sum return on uh, you know the annual tax filing. So, with that, it doesn't really make sense from a goal standpoint to have um, assets within the trust that bear interest or you know have dividends issued to it. Um, so you're essentially looking for a capital gain strategy, right? Where you know, you're, you're essentially creating a deferral of tax, you know, for all intents and purposes. Um, now, if you can achieve that with uh, whatever, you know, uh, financial vehicle uh, you can, um, that's great. But essentially you're, you're looking at something that has low portfolio turnover um, and things that are essentially, um, yeah, there for exa- uh, exactly you know, capital gains. Perfect. And did you, did you actually have something that you presented to the client where you said, this is where we would have invested you like a, I don't know, whatever ETF portfolio or however you run that. And I know that some people like life insurance here, it's not capital gains, but it's also a tax exempt gain within your life insurance contract. Did you look at that? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because there was uh, in my conversations with uh, the actuary, um, this was an individual I had perhaps, you know, 30 years of experience. Um, I'm not quite sure if he's you know, comfortable with me, you know, mentioning his name. So maybe I'll, you know, err on the side of caution here, but, um, yeah, he had, you know, about 30 years of, of industry experience and uh, he, he had, he gave some pretty cool uh, stories of, you know, I suppose the history of the RCAs, at least in his uh, experience in dealing with CPAs specifically, and how the the CPA, the generalized CPA opinion was that the RCA is essentially seen as an insurance structure where, you know, the trust holds from what I could like put together, I would assume it's essentially an overfunded UL, 
And that's kind of what I kind of pieced together. Now, were these because the the, the RCA itself, in and of itself has its own you know, tax filing obligations, brings along its own set of complexities with life insurance. And long story short, holding life insurance within their exposed and, and actually contravened the the efficiencies of life insurance and brought about a, a huge, you know, I suppose, bureaucratic um, uh, nightmare. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there's actually a fairly high profile lawsuit actually involving an athlete and an RCA. I'm not sure where it's at now in the courts, but you know, the, uh, the Andre Markov case. Yes. I was going to say, I thought it was a hockey player. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, this is interesting. And it, I mean, in that case, there was a problem because of cost of insurance really is what blew up the RCA, but, but that is effectively what you're doing by holding an entire insurance contract in an RCA is you're kind of doubling your cost of insurance, which. Right. Because the, the RCA can only fund the, the cash component too. So you're essentially creating a split dollar insurance policy, correct? Yeah. That's so that's another way to do it. One, one way is you can hold the, the entire insurance contract in the RCA, which you can do, or the other way you can do it is the split dollar, like you're suggesting and have the risk component held personally. The problem there then is you have to pay your cost of insurance with your own personal after-tax dollars, which for your client, you said he already had sufficient insurance, doesn't really sound correct appropriate, right? So yeah, I, I think there are some interesting uses of insurance to fund the RCA, but it's really, it's incredibly niche, right? Yeah. Yep. So I'm not surprised to hear the, the actuary make those comments kind of let's say critical of that structure or at least questioning whether that's appropriate. So, yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. I'm always interested with that when I run into the RCA is how are we actually funding it or supporting the, the investment component of the RCA. So, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose even further to that too, he did go on and say that even present day now, when they go to what I suppose his team goes to present an RCA concept and regardless of how, you know, inherently beneficial it is for the, the, client in contemplation, there's always that general resistance that or that kind of thought in the back of their mind that oh, one's the insurance coming, even though they, they kind of stated specifically that you know, this doesn't involve life insurance. Great, so, great. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fair. And again, I, I do think that there are places where the life insurance can work, but I get that hesitation. I, I really absolutely do. So now that you're uh, sort of put the nail in the coffin for the RCA for this particular scenario, uh, do you have a plan for what this client's going to do? You know, you talk about selflessness, is a charitable contribution maybe on the table or any other thoughts about how this person proceeds now? Yeah, we before we even contemplated, you know, what might the, the financial solution be, I, I did talk to him about you know, what, if there were any kind of measures of philanthropy kind of in uh, on the horizon and that wasn't uh, you know that wasn't a thought at least right now especially because they're you know considering starting a family so yeah interestingly enough i had thought that because the rca strategy had kind of fallen through that you know perhaps the, the relationship would go by the wayside but it actually wasn't the case. So they wanted to actually, well, they collectively wanted to, to further the conversation and see how uh, I suppose you know, financial planning would be beneficial to them after having gone through, you know, this limited exercise. Yeah. So I assume now you're just working through the, the sort of aftermath of the, the non RCA solution. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're still in contemplation right now, but um, you know, them having a, a mortgage, you know, I always kind of, I like to start with debt, right, on the financial planning side to make sure it makes sense. You know, if it does make sense for them to have the debt, you know, especially when there's windfall in, in contemplation. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're still actively trying to to work through the the situation here. Yeah, of course, paying off the mortgage is a risk free return, right? That's uh, yes, yeah, which. Very hard to come by today. So. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. Would you still try something like this if you had a similar scenario come up a year from now or whatever the case is? Would you still explore the RCA or do you consider it to be sort of not worth, or even maybe not the RCA, but some similarly complex solution? Would you still explore that kind of thing? Yeah. So I'm still an advocate for, you know, there having to be a fit right for a, you know, an issue or a problem whatever it might be but yeah i would say when it's necessary so you know after going through this i think that um really i've kind of identified i guess three things that i would look for specifically if i'm you know if i'm wanting to go down this or i suppose if the collective we between myself and the client are wanting to pursue something like this so, and that looks like, uh, you know, essentially evaluating the financial, psychological, and, um, you know, the, perhaps the retirement outlook criteria. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and have you, have you refined or added to the, the psychological element of that based on this outcome? Is there something you would talk to a client today that you might not have? And not to, I'm not trying to second guess you here, Tim, right? I get that these are difficult scenarios, but is there something you would talk about today that, that you wouldn't have talked about a year ago? That's a good question. Um, I suppose my answer to that is I really, I'm really not sure how to answer that. You know, I'm always looking for ways to, you know, perform, I suppose, a better discovery you know, process. Um, but I think now where the industry is, there's, there's more attention being garnered towards, you know, the emotional aspect of the integrated financial plan. And I would be very curious to know, you know, what that path ultimately evolves to uh, and kind of what findings kind of spin off from that. You know, I just saw in the media today that a, a university just extended their affiliation with, um, you know, a big financial institution and exploring, you know, the emotional aspect of finance. So as things like that develop, you know, I'd be very curious to see what the application is on the financial planning side, right? Especially because I see there being tremendous utility in it, right? And that's just my personal position. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been exposed to a ton of great content this way. And I actually used the term earlier, but I don't know if you're aware of uh, Susan Bradley and the Sudden Money Institute. I am not, no. So it's actually Florida-based, so we're back to Florida again here. But uh, Susan... Um, does this really great work around dealing with people who have come into unexpected windfalls. And it's, and her, her stuff is purely sort of emotional, psychological, behavioral. Uh, like she would, I think, never talk about, she's American, so wouldn't talk about the RCA anyways, but stuff like that that's fascinating. Um, I've been, I'm, I know you follow my social media stuff, so you might've seen me plugging stuff for the Financial Therapy Association lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the new body of knowledge now from FP Canada has a significant portion around money scripts in it. This, like this client is a, this is a money script issue, like 
100%. This, you know, there's, there's stuff in here that fits perfectly with, uh, with Brad Klontz's money script work. So you're, you're right that this is a, an expanding world. And I find it really interesting when you run into these scenarios where you can, you, I could probably find the page in the Brad Klontz textbook that talks about this exact thing, right? So, yes. yeah. Um, any uh, last minute thoughts or words of advice for anybody who might be uh, dealing with a client who thinks about money this way, Tim, anything you'd have to share? No, but I, I hope that, uh, you know, the future of, you know, financial planning on whatever time horizon might be. Um, I hope that, you know, the, the discussions surrounding money become inherently more and more emotional because, you know, as I found out, you know, dealing with this client, um, or I suppose prospective clients still, um, that, you know, money in and of itself is inherently important, regardless of how rudimentary or lavish your lifestyle is, you know, where, you know, people still need money just as much to, you know, afford groceries and clothing as they do to afford travel. So I, I would love to, I'm, I'm really excited to see what the you know, the landscape of financial planning with the integration of, you know, emotional considerations look like. Yeah, as am I, I find it, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big topic and it's something that absolutely needs to be addressed. So yeah, thanks very much, Tim. That's, that's really good. And that's, I, I do think this is the perfect financial planning conversation in that we get some of the technical stuff and some of the behavioral stuff. And really, as we see so often, the behavioral ended up trumping the, can I still use that word? Ended up trumping the technical, right? So. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Thanks very much, Tim. Have a, have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. So I'm recording this just a couple days after I attended the Financial Therapy Association conference, and maybe I have some recency bias because of that, but I found the Financial Therapy Association conference such an interesting look at how we interact with our money at how we develop our money scripts and how advisors and therapists, for that matter, is really interesting conference because it has this sort of mix of advisors and therapists talking to people about how they interact with their money. So what we discovered here, and I find this really just a great look at how we can integrate these money scripts discussions into our financial planning discussions. So Tim you know, went down the path of this fairly technical discussion, said, look, and it didn't sound like he was maybe that excited about it. And certainly when he emailed me, it's not like he was, I think, seeing dollar signs in his eyes or anything like that. It was really this discussion of, hey, I've got a client and, you know, we're not sure how to deal with this, but they're getting a big chunk of cash. And is there something we can do that's going to make it a little more tax efficient? And as we hear in the interview, then, the client is maybe receptive to the idea of making it a little more tax efficient. But once it becomes, I think, obvious that this is going to set this person apart, that they might end up perceived differently in their workplace from their fellow employees, we start to run into some barriers. And this is where I want to point out something that we see in Brad Klontz's book. So Dr. Brad Klontz is one of the developers of the Money Scripts Inventory. And he talks about this in his book, uh, Facilitating Financial Health. And I'm going to include a link to the Money Scripts 
in today's show notes, I would encourage you to go and have a look at them. You can go through and do your own money scripts for free. You can um, you can get yours. I did mine. It's a little bit terrifying. And yeah, you just get them emailed to you afterwards. You can send your clients to do money scripts. You can actually set up a relationship with Brad where you get a branded version of the money scripts for your own clients. And I think that there's some real value here. I don't know if this would have changed anything. Honestly, it's hard to say that kind of thing, hard to make those broad reaching statements. But when we look at some of the questions that show up, and there's a couple different versions of the money scripts inventory. I'm using the one that is straight out of the book, Facilitating Financial Health. And when we look at, for example, question one, I do not deserve a lot of money when others have less than me. And I think that Tim's client's answer to that question might have been, I think, instructive here. And the way these questions are done, they're all what's called uh, Likert scale questions, where you do, um, everybody's done these kinds of things, one, two, three, four, five, six, one is strongly disagree, and six is strongly agree, and you're sort of doing a phased scale along the way. It's called a Likert scale. So... Yeah, we might have seen that client when we see, I do not deserve a lot of money when others have less than me. We might have seen that person agree with that statement. And that might have been useful. Maybe we could have addressed that money script early. If that money script was potentially damaging to that person, we would maybe find some coaching tools to address that. We have a question four here. You should not tell others how much money you have or make. And I think this shows up a little bit in this discussion as well. Question five, rich people are greedy. And again, we get a little bit of a perception here. Question six, more money will make you happier. And I think we can hear that that person didn't seem to think that that was the case. And we go on and on through this thing. And basically what happens is at the end of it, and if you do it online, it scores itself automatically. If you do it in the paper format, you have to score it manually, but it describes to you the extent to which four different money scripts apply to your circumstances. So the money scripts, the way that Brad Klontz categorizes them, show up as money avoidance. That is, is money something that we should avoid? And this can show up a couple of different ways. This might show up in not having ostentatious displays of money. I think Tim and I got into this a little bit when we, you know, compared our used cars. I think that if you saw, you know, Tim and I both drive up in our older used cars, that might be indicative of some money avoidance behaviors. Although, interestingly, that same thing can show up in the second money script, which is money worship. And I see this a little bit today. I think I see a little bit of this in the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early, or financial independence, early retirement movement depends which acronym we use, but the money worship script, sometimes people have this money worship script where they want to accumulate a bunch of money, but sometimes money worship can show up as you want to really sort of actively demonstrate to somebody how much you've thought about money and almost like it's a status symbol how unimportant money is to you or how conscious you are about your spending decisions. That can show up as a little bit of a money worship behavior as well. So money status, this is where we link money to other things, to power or influence or that kind of thing. And this shows up in all kinds of different ways. Some interesting money status behaviors we see would be the idea of financial enmeshment, for example, which is where 
you might have the breadwinner in the household who uses their breadwinning status to sort of tie in all kinds of conversations with their family. We see sometimes that enmeshment show up where parents almost seem to inherently kind of guilt their kids about how much the kids cost them, that kind of thing. And money vigilance, and this is where we are really hyper alert around money. So all of these scripts can show up and they can show up in different kinds of behaviors. For example, when, and this is probably not a surprise, it's a Sunday morning at quarter after eight and here I am recording podcast interviews. When I went through this thing, I showed in, and if I remember right, this is a money worship behavior. I ranked relatively high in workaholism. So there's, I think, useful tools that we can see. And what Tim might find in a case like this is by engaging the money scripts, first off, he might recognize that that client is not ready for a conversation around something like an RCA. Secondly, if it's a sufficiently long-term engagement, he might be able to help that client come to terms with their money scripts and maybe adopt ways of dealing with their money that's more respectful of their money scripts or where they can do things despite having those money scripts. And it's even possible that if you're not the one to have those conversations, if you're not the right person to help people deal with their money scripts, that's where you might use a financial coach or a financial therapist to help out with that. The number for today's episode is five. The number for today's episode is five. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, there are a boatload of links I'm going to include. Joe is going to be pressed to get this done, I think, in the context of the show notes. But I'm going to include links to uh, GBL Inc., which is an actuary that can help if you ever have an RCA type of question. I'm going to include a link to Susan Bradley's Sudden Money Institute. I'm going to include a link to the Money Scripts Inventory from Brad Klontz. Uh, something we didn't talk about specifically in the interview here, but I'm going to include a link to Jason Pereira's podcast where he's talking with Trevor Perry about retirement planning for high-income business owners. 
I'll include a link to Trevor Perry's own website. And finally, a link to the Financial Therapy Association. I think that covers everything we talked about in the interview. And I'm hoping you'll join us again in two weeks' time. We're going to talk with Jonathan then about RDSPs. We're circling back to the RDSP, which anybody who knows me knows is one of my favorite financial planning topics. Jonathan is the most knowledgeable person I've ever run into as it concerns the RDSP. You'll hear that uh, I get to learn some things in this interview, and I hope you'll get to as well. Thanks very much for joining us, and please enjoy your continued studies. A few people help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing and music and a bunch of the technology stuff in the background. Maria Nguyen gets all of our various accreditations done through the uh, various accrediting bodies. And Colton Nierbeski and his team make sure that the word gets out. They take care of the marketing and all that goes along with that. Mm -hmm.